0: Well, good evening. I wanna welcome you and thank you for joining us today for our Good Friday live stream. As you noticed, I'm joined today by Pastor Matthew Shores and music leader, Andrew Park, and I'm spared from the awkward prospect of preaching to an iPhone in an empty room, and you're spared from the silliness of that mental picture. You know, during this time of being away from our church and the normalcy of our Christian lives, Those things that we do ordinarily by virtue of the fact that we're Christian believers. This time of restrictions, I find that it elicits a different response from different people. Uh, You talk to someone like my friend, Ms. Diana Cantillo, and she's just thankful and happy and praising God for how much she's learning during this time. Some of you are like my friend Sam Stevens you're bored and you're done and you're you're cooped up and you're waiting to get out some of you are like my brother steve rafalski who is more apprehensive you worry about the thought of returning to normal life without the prospect of a vaccine for the virus because it'll still be out there and that's unsettling maybe you're like me If you've talked to me at any length, you would probably get the accurate picture, unfortunately, that I'm a little bit angry for a variety of reasons related to this time. Uh, I don't like the idea of quasi-scientific models having undisputed control over my life and our society and our economy and our church. Maybe your biggest hindrance right now is that you're lonely I think of my brother, Peter Lee, and I was just saying to him, man, I can't wait till we have our taco night again at my house. Think of the lack of fellowship and personal connection that some of our brothers and sisters in our church feel right now. I think of our church right now as being in somewhat of a time of exile, and so while this exile and separation dominate our attention and our daily news cycle, and we all feel a different variety of emotions about it in this time we gather to commemorate Good Friday, the day our Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so I want to look tonight at one of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion and look at four scenes from the death of Jesus, and I want to explore how these four scenes speak to us in our time of separation and exile. If you haven't already done so, turn to John chapter 19 in your paper Bible and follow along as I read from verse number 16 through verse number 30. John 19 verse 16, it says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified and they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, he said, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I have four points for you today, and let me pray after I give them to you. Point number one, the inscription of his indictment. Point number two, the gamble for his garments. Point number three, the delegation of his duty. And point number four, the sip of from a sponge. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for my brothers who are uh, here to support me. Thank you that we get to do this uh, despite um, this time of exile and national pandemic. Thank you for the uh, brothers and sisters from the church who are logged in right now and those who will also watch the video later. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth despite the insufficiency of the human messenger. We pray that Christ would be seen. We pray that his attributes would be seen. We pray that we would um, love him and know him. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Point number one, the inscription of his indictment. I want to give you some context to the politics behind the crucifixion of Jesus. To form a complete account of the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, you must piece it together from all four of the Gospels, each of which gives us different sets of information with different details. And you must put it all together to get the full picture. When you look at the Gospels, you realize that Jesus actually had six trials between the time that he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the time that he was crucified. So here's what they are in that eight to 12 hours, there were six occasions where he was formally accused and compelled to, to defend himself. First, he was accused in a religious hearing before Annas, who was the previous high priest, the father-in-law of the current high priest. He was like a high priest emeritus, if you will. Secondly, he was sent by Annas to his son-in-law Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. Third, as soon as the Jewish religious council was able to assemble, they formally accuse him and charge him. Then they send Jesus to the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, to compel an order of execution since they had no legal authority for that kind of penalty. Fifth, Pontius Pilate, after he initially questions Jesus, he, he uh, learns that Jesus is from, is from Galilee and he knows that Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee, was in town in Jerusalem. So Pilate, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Since he doesn't want to deal with this Jewish matter that he thinks is largely a religious matter, doesn't want to have anything to do with it, and so Jesus sent to Herod is silent before Herod in his entourage. And finally, he's returned to Pilate, who is manipulated by the Jews to give an order for Jesus' execution. The Jewish religious leaders escalate their accusations against Jesus from a false accusation of a religious nature to false accusations of a criminal nature. They go from accusing him of blasphemy for his claim to be the son of God to accusing him to inciting a civic insurrection, claiming to be a king who would destroy the temple. And so they say what they need to to force the hand of Pontius Pilate making him think that Jesus is stirring up civil unrest, which would look bad for his governorship if the Roman emperor was to find out about this. You remember that they say to Pontius Pilate if you release this man you are no friend of Caesar so in the eyes of the Jewish authorities they they have a problem with Jesus's claim to divinity in the eyes of the civil authorities they have a problem with Jesus's claim to kingship and they colluded together to eliminate Jesus you know the Jews didn't have a love and a fondness for Pontius Pilate For he was Roman and he represented the oppression and the invasion and the imposition of the Roman Empire upon their lives. Nor did Pontius Pilate have a love and a fondness for the Jews. In Luke 13, Jesus refers uh, to an incident where Pontius Pilate kills a group of Galilean worshipers and defiles their religious observance and the temple by mingling their human blood with their temple sacrifices. So not a nice guy, Pontius Pilate. Scripture tells us that Herod and Pontius Pilate actually did not get along. But we're told that they became friends on the occasion when Pontius Pontius Pilate shows deference to Herod and sends Jesus over to Herod, and Herod sends him back to Pontius Pilate. Luke 23 says that they became. Buddies on that day. So think of all these in power and all their competing interests, the high priest, the retired high priest, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders. The thing that brings them all together is their condemnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 4, when the disciples pray, they recognize in their prayer that the various ways that these competing interests of these men came together to crucify the Lord Jesus was in fulfillment of Psalm 2, which says, Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth, that's Herod and Pontius Pilate, set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So now let's come full circle to the inscription upon Jesus's cross, which is in verse 19 through 21 of John chapter 19. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I want you to notice three things about the inscription of the charges against Jesus it's public. It's ironic, and it's disputed. The crucifixion was meant to be a public death penalty. Public execution is intended to include the spectators. That is, to heighten the humiliation of the punishment and to serve as a warning to the people. It displays the ferocity and the power of the state. It makes a spectacle of the condemned man. And so a component of the public nature of Jesus's crucifixion is that his charges are posted above his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We know that this is meant to publicize the accusation against Jesus, because it's written in three languages, Aramaic and Greek and Latin. Aramaic, the language of the Jews, Greek, the, Latin, the language of trade and commerce and culture, and spoken and understood throughout the Roman Empire, and Latin, the language of Roman law and the Roman Empire. The intention of having a multilingual inscription on his cross is so that everyone who sees it can be aware of what's going on. Secondly, the inscription is ironic. There's some debate about how exactly Pontius Pilate felt about Jesus he does try to evade having to deal with the matter of Jesus but eventually his hand is forced and he does have Jesus flogged and executed and so we know that at that moment Pilate doesn't regard Jesus as a king. The inscription is ironic, not genuine. The inscription is a mockery of the person and the worth of Jesus. And thirdly, the inscription doesn't sit well with the Jews. They preferred it to say, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And what difference does that make? Here's what I think is going on. The Jews take offense to the inscription regarding Jesus as their king, for they didn't accept him as a king nor did it represent them well if it was thought that their king was a man who was being executed publicly by the Roman government. They wanted it to be changed to, he said he was the king of the Jews, but Pilate's decision stands. See, first they manipulated Pilate swiftly to carry out this execution, and now he's asserting his authority over them, keeping them under his thumb. But you see, the inscription is actually correct, because Jesus is the king. But as he says to Pontius Pilate, he's not a king of an earthly kingdom. If he was, then his subjects would come to his defense and free him. What happened to his followers? They all scattered at the sign of trouble and only two followed at a distance. John is showing us in his gospel that any assumption that Jesus was supposed to establish a grassroots political movement, that he was supposed to gain an earthly following and strive for political aspirations in his day is false. See, Jesus is the king over a spiritual kingdom. He's the king of a heavenly kingdom whose expanse knows no bounds, whose history knows no end. Not a king like Pilate or Herod or Cuomo or Trump or Bernie, or Xi Jinping, or Boris Johnson, or Rodrigo Duterte, who serve at the pleasure of men and political bodies more powerful than themselves, who rule in fear of public opinion, whose reign extends until they die or are deposed. Jesus is the real king, and the ironic description on his cross is ironically true. But indeed, that inscription was meant to publicly mock the Lord Jesus. And now the next thing we see in John's account is the further humiliation of Christ where we see that Jesus was stripped of his garments. So point number two, the gamble for his garments. It's never happened to me, but psychologists say that a common dream that people have when they are under stress of a big moment or opportunity, whether it's an academic presentation or an arts performance or a job interview, they dream that they're suddenly in their underwear in the big moment. And of course, as you can imagine, such a prospect is dreadful because of the vulnerable position it puts you in, being exposed before the eyes of everyone who's watching you. It's an embarrassing prospect not to be in control of how you present yourself to the outside world, to not be in control of your clothes or your style or how much of your body is exposed or covered. As soon as we're old enough to understand privacy and modesty, it's something that we take for granted. We don't even think about it. I'd even be embarrassed if I got to someone's house and took off my shoes and I had a hole in my sock. That little tiny hole is enough to make me feel exposed and vulnerable, like everyone is looking at me thinking, this guy can't afford socks. So imagine the prospect of being stripped of your garments to be publicly executed, right? That should mess with our heads to contemplate the intentional humiliation of the Lord in that manner. It should make us uncomfortable. Like, I do want to think about and contemplate and meditate upon what the Lord went through on the cross, but simultaneously, I don't want to think of the Lord going through something like that. Scripture tells us that the soldiers split his garments among themselves. In the ancient world, it was not like our industrialized age, where garments are made cheaply and plentifully, but were expensive, and common people usually had only enough for their necessity and not for their taste of extravagance and style and variety. The soldiers carrying out the crucifixion helped themselves to Jesus' garments. They divided his garments into four parts. It doesn't mean that Jesus was wearing just four garments, but that whatever he was wearing could be ripped apart at the seams and divided into four shares we know this because of the one garment that john tells us stands out his tunic which was an outer garment but to be worn under the robe and it was seamless and so they cast lots for it so they wouldn't have to divide it this fulfilled the prophecy of psalm 22:18: um, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots There's one more connection I wanna make for you that may not be readily apparent. As Christians, we have a theology of clothing and modesty. It comes from Genesis chapter three. After Adam and Eve sinned, they became conscious of their nakedness as a fearful and undesirable prospect. And I've never really heard a sermon about why there's a connection between our spiritual fall and the shame of nakedness. But I think it's something like this, that our bodies being exposed makes us feel as though the dirtiness of our souls is also exposed. I think it's something like that. So notice the contrast between the first man, Adam, and the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. Adam sins and is given skins to cover his body. Christ is our sin-bearing savior, and the soldiers strip his clothes. The sin of Adam is his own, and God covers him. The sins upon Christ are not his own, and he's stripped. So let's move on to our third point, the delegation of the duty. These are some of the most beautiful and compassionate and tender words of the Lord when he says to Mary, Woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. It says in verse 25, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. These words of Jesus are spoken to the two people who shared the greatest tenderness with Jesus as recorded in scripture. First, Mary, his mother. If it could ever be said that another person had cared for Jesus, it would be his mother who fed him and raised him and watched over him and worried for him. The prophet Simeon, at the beginning of Jesus's life, said to Mary that a sword would pierce her very soul because of Jesus. And he prophesied correctly because what other human can foster the emotional and relational attachment to christ as his mother and now she is a witness of his execution the son of god as sinless as can be and she knew that because she raised him executed as a criminal and accused as a blasphemer mary we believe at this point was a widow joseph her husband was likely deceased at this point after having fathered more children with her and having raised them and taught them their skills he had passed away and Jesus, being the eldest son, had a responsibility to care for his mother. And then we have John, the, the disciple, who reclined on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, who labeled himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. But don't look at John's john's tenderness and be fooled john was a man's man a rugged individual a fisherman who hauled fish and mended nets and predicted the seas he was strong and could outrun peter and if he had his way he would have called down fire on the cities that rejected jesus and so he earned the nickname the son of thunder and it was to this son of thunder that jesus entrusted the care of his earthly mother and i want to ask you do you tend to imagine That the priorities of God's sovereign attention upon the universe are only upon bigger and more abstract things that have nothing to do with the problems and the fears that you encounter in your life. Do you think that God doesn't notice or condescend to your fears about job security and your loneliness and your lack of a spouse and your lack of resources and your lack of relationships and your need for groceries and your need for sanitizers and all the other cares and worries that plague you daily? Do you ever think that God doesn't see or care? We see here from the tender provision of his command and entrusting, he gives his mother to John and John to his mother, that he would be to her a son and she would be to him a mother. Even in his dying breath, he is compassionately caring for the problems of others. Who will take care of mom? And who will look out for John after James and the other disciples die? We're told that from that day, John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his home. One, one other observation I'll make about this point. Here we see Jesus divested of the most intimate of his earthly relationships, one that is biological and familial, and one with his disciple whom he loved. See, Mary would still have a relationship with Jesus, but it would no longer be a mother-son relationship. It would be a Lord-disciple relationship. Everything would change. Do you remember when Mary Magdalene, after the resurrection, recognizes Jesus and she says, Rabboni, and she tries to cling to him? And Jesus says, don't cling to me. Why? Because the nature of all his earthly relationships would be changing. Finally, let's go to point number four, the sip of the sponge verse 28 and following after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture I thirst a full jar of sour wine stood there and they put a uh, a sponge full of the sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and bowed his head and gave up his spirit In these last words of Jesus, I thirst, we see the humanity of Jesus. In his anguish, he feels the reality of human need. He thirsts. His lips and his tongue and throat are dry and raw. Remember that it's still a man dying on that cross. I think sometimes we underestimate, I know I do, the horror of the crucifixion by thinking that since Jesus is the divine son of God, that there's not a real experience of pain and suffering in his death. It's actually worse for Jesus than it would be for an ordinary man, because his divine being is encased in human flesh. Having subjected himself to the form of a man, he is trapped in a profound horror that God could otherwise not be subjected to. The creator is being killed at the hands of his creation and has made it so that he has to take it. He has to drink the cup to the last drop. The one who is so pure that he cannot look upon sin, who himself is the giver of the holy law, he becomes polluted with sin and is subject to to damnation. And he has given himself to such a sacrifice where he is not able to escape Don't lose sight of the fact that it's a man, a real man, really human on that cross. And so he thirsts. And what is found to quench the thirst of the Son of God? Sour wine. A wine that has begun to acidify into vinegar. And once it does that, it's not much more than a cleaning agent or a brine. And it's soaked on a rag and put to the lips of the Son of God. It's putrid and humiliating. He, the Son of God, of whom the finest wines and the best coffees and the purest of waters and the sweetest of nectars, all would be unworthy and unfit for, yet even a decent drink isn't afforded to the creator of all things. And once he received that sour wine, he says, it is finished. And here we see the completion of Christ's work for his people. It is finished. The work Christ intended to do was completed. The plan to offer himself In behalf of sinners, he has done it. Just a day earlier, he broke bread, explaining his body would be broken. He gave his disciples wine, explaining his blood would be shed for their sins. And now his body was broken and his blood was shed and he endured it to the very last bit. It was finished. If you're not a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you just happen to log on to our Facebook feed or you're an occasional visitor or maybe you're a kid from our church, you need to know this. You need to know that you are a sinner. You and I are sinners. We are all born sinners, and we live every day of our lives as sinners. And sin is anything that we do or think or feel that it's against the law and the character of God. And God has appointed a day when he will judge the world, and all sinners will be found guilty before him and be removed from his presence to suffer hopelessly apart from him forever. But there's good news because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Christ has finished the work Christ has died in our place. The eternal Son of God took on himself humanity. He came and lived in our place and died for our sins. The eternal Son of God died so that we would not die eternally. Scripture says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I would be remiss in not mentioning an all-important all important component of the good news, which is that we will celebrate Easter Sunday, which is that Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again from the grave. Christ finished the work of dying for our sins on the cross. That was accomplished in time past, before you were born. It was finished outside of you. It was finished without your help. You contribute nothing to it. You don't improve on it. He has done it all. The work is finished. Finally, Christian believer, let me encourage you in our time of exile, because of this national pandemic, I want to encourage you to take comfort in what Christ gave up to purchase you. In this passage, we saw the ironic inscription mocking Christ's kingship, accusing him of insurrection. Well, Christ gave up his reputation and reserved no earthly political aspirations for himself so that one day you would be a citizen of God's kingdom. Christ was stripped of his clothing and humiliated, and his executioners gambled away his garments. He gave up his clothes so that one day you would be clothed in robes of his righteousness. Christ entrusted his mother to his disciple, giving up all human relationships according to the flesh so that one day you would eternally be in communion with God and the family of saints in heaven. And while Christ thirsted on the cross and found no satisfaction one day, you will never thirst again in his kingdom. They offered him vinegar on a sponge because he won't take the fruit of the vine again until you're with him in his kingdom. In our time of exile and a national pandemic, you may feel like the disciples on Good Friday, scared, isolated, hiding insecure, uncertain. It may feel like all the hopes and dreams that we had for this year have quickly vanished. Think about every plan we had as a church. Think about the sermons that were going to be preached, the dinners we were going to have, the people that we were going to evangelize, the members who were going to join, the spaces we were going to renovate. And we didn't factor a pandemic into our plans. Think about how the disciples felt on Good Friday, that they didn't really think it would end with jesus on the cross though he told them that many times and then when it's over it's like okay now what what do we do where do we go from here pastor matt always reminds us on good friday of his dad's words and so let me say the same also it's friday but sunday is coming let's pray gracious god thank you for christ's finished work on the cross Thank you for just a moment to meditate upon it. And I pray for all of the hearers of it that your word would go forth in the power of your spirit and accomplish your purposes. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.